You're now listening to the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everybody. Welcome back for the third episode in the short-term rental series, where we discuss how to use the short-term rental loophole to minimize your tax liability. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing tax court cases and the do's and don'ts, what you need to be aware of when executing the strategy to make sure that you steer clear of Uncle Sam. So before we dive right in, we do want to remind everybody again about our Facebook community, Tax Smart Real Estate Investors, where a lot of great conversations are taking place right now. There's over a thousand members and growing. We're going to be releasing updates to the tax code changes as they progress. And with the Biden tax changes in the pipeline, it's something you're going to want to be aware of and how they might impact you. So you can go ahead and join this group by visiting www.facebook.com slash groups slash tax smart investors, or simply searching for tax smart real estate investors on Facebook. Lastly, before we dive right in, we do want to remind everybody about the Tax Strategy Foundation course. It's a five-module, 12-hour course that covers real estate tax from A to Z, from basic deductions, entity structuring, short-term rental strategy, real estate professional status, cost segregation studies, exit strategies, and so much more. You can get this course for the low price of only $8.97 by visiting www.therealestatecpa.com, click on the education tab, and you'll see a link that'll take you to learn more information about the course and also where you can register. Now, you can also use a promotional code RECPA that'll take $100 off the price. Again, that's RECPA. It'll take $100 off the price of the course. We look forward to seeing you over there, but for right now, we're going to jump right into today's episode. All right. I think what we're going to do is walk through a few tax court cases that pertain to owning short-term rentals. We'll start with Berniscus versus Commissioner. And this was a 1999 decision. So this was decided in year 1999. So what we'll do is, is just kind of like talk about the facts of the case We'll talk about the opinion and then we'll give some context or our thoughts on it to help you kind of understand what was going on. So, so Berniscus here, he is, so this is the taxpayer. They bought a unit. They bought a condo unit in Bluefin Bay. That was the name of the condominium. And it was on Lake Superior. So it was a travel destination. Bluefin Bay Condo Association arranged for TMC which is a management company to manage all of the units. And the taxpayer in this case basically argued that the condo unit that they owned should be a non-passive activity because they materially participated in the activity. So they get audited, they go to tax court because they disagree. So they go to tax court and tax court analyzes the case and provides an opinion. So we're gonna read you some of the opinion that the tax court provided So a few interesting statements from the opinion. The first is that the tax court said, we find that several of the activities described in the petitioner's personal time records constitute investor activities. And that goes all the way back to material participation, right? So when we say you have to be involved in the day-to-day activities in order for certain investor level activities to count towards material participation, 
when we say that that whole myth about real estate professional status, 500 hours compared to 750 hours, that 250 hour spread can be anything, investor level hours. Again, all you have to do is read a couple of these tax court cases to realize that's not true. So, so they said, we find that several of the activities described in petitioner's personal time records constitute investor activities. In particular, petitioner's activities of organizing their personal records, preparing the taxes, paying bills, and reviewing their monthly financial statements of the rentals all constitute investor activities. Petitioners have failed to establish that they materially participated in the rental activity. Even if we were to assume that petitioners expended 100 hours in the rental activity during the years, they have not proved that their participation was greater than the management company's participation. Why is that, Tom? Why, why is that 100 hours or more than the management company's participation important? It's important because it's one of the material participation tests, and it's one of the more difficult ones to prove, You know, especially when you have a property management company doing the level of services that were being performed in this particular case, which were very substantial. If you go ahead and take a look at the task court case, you know, the property management company was doing pretty much everything, you know, for the most part. And it just becomes very challenging to be able to substantiate that in court. I mean, you'd have the records of all the people that were working there. And in addition to what Brandon was saying, a lot of the time that they were trying to spend did not count because they were not involved in the day-to-day activities of the property. So all that investor time is time spent reviewing reports, paying bills, filing taxes. That type of time does not count because they weren't involved in the day-to-day. So uh, they just kind of got stuck between a rock and a hard place. And one thing I'll say in this, if you're going to be using a property management company, really, I mean, the only test that's going to be really viable, unless you're going to have really good time records, is the 500-hour test. And you have to have a pretty substantial portfolio you know, at that point in time to make that work. 100%. And the tax court, they went further. So they, they looked at the other individual's participation in the activity because... As Tom just mentioned, in order to prove that you've materially participated in an activity, you have to spend 100 hours and more than anyone else. So even though the tax court went through this and they said, hey, your investor level time, when we strip that out, like you're not materially participating, they went further anyway. And they looked at who else was participating in the activity and to what extent. So they cited that the second requirement of the material participation regs uh, say that you have to spend more time participating than any other individual. And they said that the petitioners in this case, when we we say petitioners, what we mean is the taxpayer. So the IRS is the respondent, the taxpayer is the petitioner. So the petitioners must establish that no other individuals participated in the activity of renting their unit for more time than they did during the years at issue. Then they go through, uh, they, they, they kind of give some context about the management company itself. They say that the founder, the president, and the secretary of the management company, it's all the same person. He started soliciting the owners of the condominium units to contribute to a fund to basically spend on legal resources to combat this type of a ruling. And the whole purpose there was to boost property values, right? So obviously, if the ruling says, yeah, even though you have a property manager, you're spending more time than the property manager. So, you know, that's fine. Basically, the property manager was going and saying, I didn't spend more time than the actual owner. And because he had a vested interest in that, because if that's the case, those units are going to be higher value, right? Somebody else is going to come buy them for the tax benefits because of that. And there are a couple other things leading up to that. But because of that, that kind of conflict of interest, the tax court did not take what the property manager was saying at face value. So the tax court said in 
kind of a final summary paragraph. Based on the record, we find that petitioners have failed to prove that they participated in the activity of renting their unit more than the management company's employees during the years at issue. And this is kind of interesting because the material participation test says 100 hours and more than any other individual. But in this one sentence, they say, we find that petitioners have failed to prove that they participated in the activity of renting their unit more than the management company's employees. So, so, you know, I, I read that as they were looking at all of the employees to decide if the management company was spending more time than the unit owner. Yeah. And, and that makes a lot of sense because if you look at the law, oftentimes like companies are considered individuals. For example, you know, Apple is a corporate entity. Um, they're an individual, you know, under the law. So I think maybe in here, in this case in particular, they're looking at, they're defining the word individual to mean uh, not only a person, but potentially an entire company, depending, I would imagine how it's structured. Uh, or maybe that's just how they look at a company in general. Yeah. I, it, that's my read on it. I'm not a hundred percent sure if that's actually what they're doing because they do go and say, you know, the housekeeping staff inspected and cleaned petitioners units after all of their guests checked out. And they had 227 guests in 1992 and 238 guests in 1991. So I think what they might be saying there is like, you know, if your house cleaning is turning the unit after 238 guests, then that's 238 hours. Like if, if you're not able to give me a time log or any sort of evidence that proves how much time they spent, then how do I back into the number? And so, so they looked at the housekeeping, then they uh, looked at the front desk that was checking in all of those guests too. So they do, they, they do say, you know, in the summary there, they weren't spending more time than the employees. And they do go into the specific employees that may have spent a ton of time, like the housekeepers, like the, the front desk folks. So I'm not, I'm not really sure, but you know, if you want to be safe, consider the property manager, like the company as a whole, an individual, but the regs do say 100 hours and more than any one other individual. It doesn't say 100 hours and more than your property management company as a whole. So I, I don't really have a good, uh, <laughs> good advice there. <laughs> yeah. You know, unfortunately, unfortunately, it's just one of those things that, um, is a little bit ambiguous and we'll have to, we'll have to wait and see if there's more guidance to come out. But, you know, always when you're dealing with large sums of money, and potential penalties and interest that could come as a result of a lost IRS audit or a tax court case, it's usually better to err on the side of caution rather than to go gung-ho, but that's up to sometimes to risk tolerance and how, how you believe you could position your facts and circumstances, of course. 100%. So the next cases that we have, there's two Bailey tax court cases. Uh, one was decided in 2001. The other was decided in 2011. They're unrelated Baileys. The 2011 case, the taxpayer owned long-term rentals and also owned an inn, so a short-term rental. The inn, they spent over a thousand hours on operating during the year. And what the taxpayer was trying to do is they, they, they claimed real estate professional status and they were trying to, in, in effect, use the inn's hours to help make the long-term rentals non-passive, the other long-term rentals that they own non-passive. And so in the the court's opinion to decide the 2011 case, they looked at the 2001 Bailey case, again, unrelated Baileys. In the 2001 Bailey case, the taxpayers were husband and lice, uh, husband and lice. They were a husband and wife. They were licensed attorneys. They had a couple rental properties, two fourplex buildings to be specific. 
And then they also had a what they refer to as the Lake Arrowhead property, which was a single family home, um, as well as a condominium unit, which were short term rentals. So the the Lake Arrowhead property and the Indian Wells property were short term rental units. Now, the IRS disallowed the loss from the Lake Arrowhead property because they said basically that the Baileys did not establish that they materially participated in operating the property because the Baileys engaged a management company to operate that property. But the taxpayer in the case, the Baileys, contended that they qualified as a real estate professional because when they included the Lake Arrowhead property they met the two statutory requirements to qualify as a real estate professional, the 750 hour test and the more more time in real estate than anywhere else. However, the court, the tax court, ultimately sided with the IRS saying that the taxpayer did not materially participate in the Lake Arrowhead property. And after excluding the taxpayer's time on the Lake Arrowhead property, because of its short less than seven days average rental period, the taxpayer did not have more than 750 hours in personal services. So basically, the tax court in that case said, hey, because you have a short-term rental and because there's that exception to the rule that says if you spend seven days or less on a short-term rental activity, that you don't have a real property trader business that qualifies for real estate professional status, you can't count the hours towards real estate professional status. So in summary, what they're saying is, if you have a short-term rental, you can't count the hours towards real estate professional status. Now, this 2011 case applied those same facts and basically said that while material participation is significant for determining whether a trader business is a passive activity, like the 2001 Bailey case, because the in in the 2011 case, the in had a thousand hours and the taxpayer was arguing that when you throw the thousand hours in, they can qualify as a real estate professional. When you strip that out, because it's not a rental activity due to that seven day or less rule, the thousand hours goes away for real estate professional status. So in the 2011 Bailey case, they applied the same logic. They disallowed the taxpayer's ability to claim the losses on the long-term rentals because what the taxpayer was trying to do was say, I materially participate in my in the in time, like managing my in counts towards real estate professional status. Therefore, my long-term rental should also be non-passive. And the tax court disallowed the non-passive losses from the long-term rentals. Now, what's interesting here, what, what I find interesting is that the in was an actual service business. So I, I find it hard to believe that just because you meet the seven-day exception and it's not a rental activity that it's not otherwise a real property trader business. And that's actually what they were trying to argue in both of these Bailey cases. That's exactly what they were trying to argue was that, hey, just because it's not a rental activity per that exception to the rule of seven days or less, doesn't mean that it's not otherwise a real property trader business. But what was interesting is that at least in the 2011 Bailey case, where they kind of reaffirmed the 2001 Bailey case, the inn was an actual service business and they specifically they specifically cited a senate finance committee report the 1986 senate finance committee report where it says a passive activity is defined under the bill to include any rental activity whether or not the taxpayer materially participates however operating a hotel or similar transient lodging for example where substantial services are provided is not a rental activity now 
Under the regs, we've been talking about the seven day or less rule. So if on average, my customer stays seven days or less, then it's not a rental activity. But there's also another rule that says, if on average they stay 30 days or less and I provide significant services or substantial services, then it's not a rental activity. But what's interesting is, you know, our prior analysis here, we feel that unless you are providing substantial services or you are a real estate dealer, then it's not a Schedule C activity. You're not subjecting this property to self-employment taxes, right? So my question is, well, I have an in that I materially participate in. I'm providing substantial services to my tenants. Yeah, it shouldn't qualify. The hours that I spend in a service business should not qualify towards my real property, my, my real estate professional status, right? But the question is, what about the beach house that I own where I don't provide substantial services to my guests? It's not a service business. That's the question. So we reached out to our good friend, Tony Nitty. Now, if you don't know who Tony Nitty is, I highly recommend that you type in Tony Nitty real estate professional status. He is like the guy, the expert on section 469. So we reached out to Tony to see if we could get a response from him. Basically kind of asking the same question. Hey, just because a short-term rental is not a rental activity under the section 469 treasury regs, does that mean that it can't otherwise qualify for real estate professional status? Like why couldn't the hours spent on short-term rental activities still count toward the 750 hour test for real estate professional status while simultaneously not counting as a rental activity? And Tony replied, he said, my takes the exact same as yours. Don't pay attention to Bailey. That was before the IRS figured out the interplay between the nine regs and the two quantitative tests for real estate professional status. Now, the nine regs, this treasury regs, 1.469-9, that's where you find the grouping election for rental activities and a lot of other good information. And then the two quantitative tests that he's referencing are the 750-hour test and the more than half your time test to qualify as a real estate professional. He said, there's no reason that the hours spent in a short-term rental shouldn't count towards the two quantitative tests, but not the nine regs. So it's still kind of up in the air. I, I think that what we know is that if you have a service business, it's not gonna count towards real estate professional status. And I think that that makes sense. You know, If just because you're renting a commercial office space and you're running your CPA office out of it doesn't mean that you get to be a real estate professional, right? You're not, you're not engaged in a real property trader business. You're engaged in a CPA firm service business. You just happen to own the building as well. And I think that the same sort of logic applies here. But again, the question is, when I have a short-term rental, I'm not providing substantial services. I'm not a real estate dealer, but I am materially participating can I count the hours towards real estate professional status? Yeah. And I just want to add to that, you know, if we look back at what a real property trader business is, there's a number of different things, including acquisition, brokerage, management of it. And those businesses don't specifically deal with rental activities. But yeah, when you have a short-term rental property, it's still a piece of real property at the end of the day. I mean, it's even depreciated over 39 years on the depreciation schedule, which is how commercial real properties depreciated. So maybe, maybe Tony's onto something there that they just didn't have it right. You know, the IRS just didn't have it right in the beginning, you know, back then at that point in time, because there really is, I mean, it's really hard for me to, to, 
to say that a short-term rental is not a real property trader business when it's a piece of real property that you're renting out. Yeah, and, and I think that I think that the argument can go both ways. It'll be interesting to see how this is litigated in the future because these cases, the 2001 Bailey case and the 2011 Bailey case, they are both litigated before Airbnb really took off, right? So now that Airbnb is relatively prevalent, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out in tax court over the over the coming years. All right, so we have another task court case. It's Egger versus the United States. Uh, this one's from 2019. So not so far long ago um, was this case uh, open. So in, in this specific case, uh, the taxpayers were real estate professionals and they had once they had a few properties, uh, three properties in specific um, that they tried to group together with their aggregate rental portfolio under the Dash 9 election, uh, which we had just talked about. However, this property in particular was ultimately rented out. The end user of these properties were uh, short-term tenants. Uh, so it was pretty much a short-term rental property. And what the taxpayer had argued in this case is that they had an agreement with the management company that the management company basically is the one who has the right to use the property. And therefore, the management company is the tenant. And then the, the management company effectively leased it out to the end customers. And because the management company was a tenant and they had the right to use the property, it was a long-term rental and therefore could be grouped with their long-term rental properties. However, the task court found that basically just because the management company had the right to use the property did not make them the end customer, but rather their management agreement was really a marketing agreement. Uh, it was basically a traditional property management agreement for our intents and purposes here. And that the real end user of the property was the, the short-term tenants. And therefore it was a short-term rental because it was rented out for an average period of less than seven days and therefore could not be grouped with their long-term rental properties. So kind of the moral of this story here is that you cannot group together your short-term rentals with your long-term rentals for the purpose of the Dash 9 election. They are two separate items. So your long-term rentals are your long-term rentals and your short-term rentals are your short-term rentals. And this kind of just ties back into everything we've been talking about up until this point in that you don't need to be a real estate professional to use the short-term rental strategy. I mean, and this effectively proves it because they said that you can't group them in with the short-term, with the real estate professional status because they're not rental activities because they're an average stay of seven days or less. So that's kind of the, the moral of this story here. Yeah, and, and just to throw one, one other additional thought, the, the main way that the Edgars shot themselves in the foot was that they could not prove that the management company itself had a continuous or recurring right to use the resort properties that the Edgars owned. And because of that, the end tenant became the Edgars tenant rather than the management company. So the Edgars, again, were trying to say that the management company was their tenant. And if that was the case, then the management company would have been leasing it from them for 365 days. So it would have been a rental activity in that case. But like Tom said, it was a standard management agreement. It didn't stipulate that the management company had the continuous and recurring right to use. Therefore, the management company is essentially overlooked. You go to that end tenant, that's the tenant, and they were all staying seven days or less. So we had a not a rental activity and the Edgars could not group it 
with their other long-term rental activities and claim the losses as a whole as non-passive. And the final case that we're going to be looking at today is Lucero versus Commissioner. This was a 2020 decision. In Lucero, the taxpayer had a short-term rental property that they called the Sea Ranch property. Uh, it was in California. It was several hours away from the petitioner's home, from the taxpayer's home in Sacramento, California. And that's going to be important later. So basically, the taxpayers paid a property management company, Sea Ranch Escapes LLC, to manage their Sea Ranch short-term rental property on a day-to-day basis. The management agreement included day-to-day rental operations, advertising to, to prospective tenants, collecting deposit fees, rent, maintaining and cleaning the properties between stays, landscaping, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So before we even get started here, we can already see that this is not going to go very well, right? If you've listened to our real estate professional status episodes, you know that that sounds like the property management companies materially participating, not the Luceros, the taxpayer in this case. Regardless, the taxpayers claimed the non-passive losses from the short-term rental activity, and they claimed that they materially participated in the activity, and that was what was at issue here. So, sorry, there, there were actually two things at issue. The first thing that was at issue was whether or not this was a personal use property. So kind of going back to those vacation rental rules, if you stay in the property for 15 days, more than 14 days, or more than 10% of the total rental days, then you actually have a personal residence and you, your loss is limited. You have to do expense ordering rules and it gets messy. So first, the IRS challenged the taxpayers on that. They said, hey, you, you actually have a residence here. This is a personal residence subject to Section 280 Cap A, subject to all those rules. The tax court uh, actually sided with the taxpayer on this and said that they accept the taxpayer's claim that most of the trips to the property were for upkeep. And in the past, the tax court has found that days spent primarily repairing and maintaining the unit will not count towards personal use merely because other individuals are on the premises, are engaged in some other activity. That's Rose versus Commissioner, a 2019 case, and then Van Malsen versus Commissioner, a 2014 case, where they discuss the history of Section 280 Cap A and go over you know, when is it actually a personal use or not. But if you're there performing, doing repairs, maintenance, then it's not going to be personal use. It's not going to count against you towards that 14-day rule that we were just talking about. So that was the first thing that they decided. And they sided with the taxpayer on that. So the next thing that they had to decide on was related to the passive activity loss limitations, whether or not the taxpayer materially participated in the activity. The taxpayer was relying on the third test for material participation. The third test for material participation says that the taxpayer spends 100 hours and more than anyone else on the rentals operations during the year or on the business operations during the year. The taxpayer was relying on a time log that he created while his case was with IRS appeals in which he attempted to reconstruct the number of hours that he and his spouse spent on the Sea Ranch rental. The log included time spent paying bills, coordinating with the property management company, and preparing their own tax returns. The tax court called that time out and said, unless the individual is directly involved in the day-to-day management of the operations, that time's not going to count. They also excluded the time that the taxpayer spent driving between the Sea Ranch property and his Sacramento home. They said that we recognize the taxpayer drove several hours each way, but they bear the expense of commuting 
because it's a personal expense unless an allocation for additional expenses can be made between personal and business expenses. Additionally, they cited that the taxpayer's time log reported hours for tasks that appeared excessive in relation to the task described, such as spending two hours shopping for coffee filters at Bed Bath & Beyond, and they included time shopping for both the Sea Ranch property and for personal items, such as one hour shopping at a supermarket for two items for the Sea Ranch property and more than 20 personal grocery items. Basically, they surmised that the credibility of the taxpayer's records was significantly diminished and the number of hours reported appears excessive. They then stated that because of the defects in the log, we need not make specific adjustments to exclude remaining categories of hours. The log itself is not reliable and therefore is not reasonable means of establishing material participation hours. It effectively amounts to ballpark guesstimates and does not establish that the taxpayer spent 100 hours on the short-term rental activities during the year. And so in the end of the day, everybody, the time you spend on stuff has to be reasonable. And like we mentioned in the rep series, the tax court judges and other people, they have their own life experiences and they know that it doesn't take an hour to shop for two coffee filters in the Beth Bed and Beyond. That takes, you know, maybe 20 minutes. I mean, if the line's pretty long, I mean, it's not going to take that long. It's coffee filters. It's not rocket science. So you got to keep it reasonable. And you guys got to realize that if you have unreasonable things in your time log, you're going to diminish your credibility in the eyes of the task court to the point where they may just say that the entirety of the information that you're presenting to them is just uncredible and they can't, uh, they have to dismiss it. 100%. And even if you could prove that all that time was great, you still have to prove that, or at least in this case, the taxpayer still had to prove that they spent more time than the management company. And so the tax court actually examined that and they said, even if we were to assume that the taxpayer spent 100 hours on short-term rental activities during the years in question, the record does not include any documents that show the number of hours other individuals, such as the property managers, spent on the rental activities in connection with the Sea Ranch property. The taxpayer testified that he was heavily involved with the Sea Ranch property and that the property management company spent much less time than he did on the short-term rental activities. But he also testified that he only visited the property six to eight times a year. The taxpayer was unable to present any evidence demonstrating the property management's participation. And as a result, the tax court concluded that the petitioner, that the taxpayer, failed to show that they participated in the short-term rental activities in excess of any other individual, in, in excess of the property management company. They did not meet their burden of proof. They lost the case. And what I find interesting about this is you can't just go and grab tax money. So full circle back to episode one of this series where we were talking about, don't let the tax tail wag the dog. Because Lucero, the taxpayer in this case, in Lucero versus commissioner, he visited his property six to eight times a year. It was only a few hour drive to and from his home. He visited it six to eight times a year. He did a lot of the upkeep and yet he was unable to prove that he materially participated in the activity. So if you're going to buy short-term rentals and if you're going to you know, go after this tax savings, this ability to avoid real estate professional status and still claim non-passive losses from your short-term rental activities, you need to make sure that you're actually playing a pretty significant role in the ongoing management or managing it yourself. If you have on-site management, if you have on-site property managers, we just went through several tax court cases where 
almost every single one of them lost because of the on-site management. And specifically, some of these opinions are calling out the management of the property managers or the coordinating with the property managers as investor level time, not counting. So don't think that, you know, I can I can have a property manager do all the dirty work and I'll just kind of sit back and log some time that would otherwise be material participation time. It, it, it's probably not going to be enough if you get audited and if you go to tax court. So if you're buying short-term rentals, be careful. Here, here are, we just went over five tax court cases that show you the downsides of not taking this seriously enough. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, kind of just to summarize some of this stuff for everybody here. Okay. Uh, time logs are extremely important. You want to be able to substantiate your position and you, you want your time log to be reasonable. So therefore it is credible in front of the IRS as well as tax court. God forbid it ever makes it to that point. Next, if you're going to rely on the 100 hour test, for example, the 100 hours and no one else spends more than you, then you need to be cognizant of, okay, not only your time log, but you need to be able to substantiate the time that the other party spent so that you could, like I said, if you ever make it into tax court, you can show here's the time I spent, here's the time the other party spent, and we have it clearly documented, right? And also got to realize that investor level hours, things like reviewing reports, paying bills, things of that nature will not count unless you're involved in the day-to-day operations of the property. And typically, um, if you have a property management company, they're going to be involved in the day-to-day operations because that's what they do. That's why you hired them, right? So, and then there's one more thing, one more thing we got to point out, and that is short-term rentals cannot be grouped together with your long-term rentals. That's pretty, that's made pretty clear at this point. So you got to look at this two separate tests and in many ways, this is the good part about it. The good part about this entire strategy is that you that they're separate because now that means that you can still just, all you need to do is materially participate in your short-term rentals, which again, have an average stay of seven days or less. And they could be non-passive. You don't need to do the hurdle of spending 750 hours or more and more than half your total working time in a real property trader business in order to turn your short-term rentals non-passive. Now, all of that being said, this extremely complicated area of the task code. It is a loophole. It is still relatively new as Airbnbs, VRBOs are still, you know, over the recent, over the last few years. And that's, that's, that's light speed for, for tax and tax, the tax doesn't move that fast. Legislation doesn't always move that fast. So um, you're going to want to work with your tax and legal and financial advisors to make sure that this strategy makes sense for you holistically. Because again, it's not just an invest, it's not just a tax decision. It's an investment decision, and it's also a business decision. Because you have to materially participate, you have to play a role in the operation. You have to play a significant role in the operations uh, in order to make this thing tick. Well said. I couldn't have said it better than better myself. That was a great way to close out the series. Thanks so much for listening to the Short Term Rental Series. If you're interested in getting a solid foundation of tax knowledge built for real estate investors, check out our tax course uh, it is an evergreen course. The price is $897, but you can use code RECPA at checkout to get $100 off. You can find that course at www.therealestatecpa.com. Click on the education tab and you'll get a link right to that course. And again, that is a, a course that we built for real estate investors to educate you. It's in layman's terms. We really break things down uh, so that you can understand it. And it's a, a lot of good content, 12 hours of video content. Uh, you get a course community where you can ask questions. I'm done talking about the course. If you love the podcast, if you love the podcast, we would love to see a review from you. The people that spend time reviewing us, uh, sending in reviews on Apple iTunes, 
I mean, that's awesome. We, we really appreciate it. You're, you're taking an extra five minutes out of your day um, that you're giving us, which is amazing. And you're also providing so much context for anybody that's looking at the podcast and potentially wondering, should they start listening to it? So thank you so much to everybody who has given us reviews. Special thanks to those giving us five-star reviews. Uh, but, but if you like the podcast, please go give us review and uh, we will see you on the next series. Actually, I got one more thing we have to, I have to mention before we leave today, and that is we are now on YouTube, so now the video versions of these podcasts. So if you want to see our beautiful faces and the beautiful <laughs> faces of some of the guests we bring on, you can now find us on YouTube. Um, just go ahead and Google the real Google YouTube. <laughs> Might as well either way, uh, the Real Estate CPA, and you'll be able to find us on YouTube. Go ahead and hit the subscribe button, ring the bell. <laughs> you know, you know the YouTube stuff. Anyway, that's all I have. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.